Talking History. This is News Talk. We shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight in the hills, we shall never surrender. And out of that silence came thousands of voices. The strategy of the white man has always been divide and conquer. As one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Aukteroin, Argus, Akoiza. Good evening and welcome. We're talking history on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. In tonight's show, the story of the remarkable young Scotswoman who saved Bonnie Prince Charlie by disguising him as an Irish maid. The Himalayas, past, present and future. Irish language policy in the state over the past 100 years. And then we'll end the show with the Roman invasion of Britain and why it took so long. We'd love you to email us your thoughts and views, talkinghistory at newstalk.com. Last week, we found out about the destruction of the records in the forecourts at the start of the Civil War 100 years ago and the extraordinary efforts to recover them with the Beyond 2022 project. And if you want to listen back to this or to any of our older shows, just go to the News Talk app powered by Go Loud our website, newstalk.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. We begin tonight's show with Pretty Young Rebel, the life of Flora MacDonald. The year is 1746, the Jacobite Rebellion has failed catastrophically, and Scotland is reeling in the devastating aftermath of the Battle of Culloden. Far to the west, on an island in the Outer Hebrides, 24-year-old Flora MacDonald is woken in the dead of night by a messenger with urgent intelligence. Bonnie Prince Charlie is outside, begging for her help. And thus begins the exciting story of Flora MacDonald. And it's been told brilliantly in a new book by Flora Fraser called Pretty Young Rebel, The Life of Flora MacDonald. It's published in hardback by Bloomsbury Publishing. And I'm delighted to welcome the author to the show tonight. Flora, you're very welcome. Uh, thank you, Patrick. Great to be on the show. I, I love the way you present the story of Flora and I love the way you even mention how you were named after Flora MacDonald. So there's that wonderful personal connection as well. Yes, I, I, I've had it all my life, which is now um, a good many decades, shall we say. <laughs> so, yes, I've, I've always had this, uh, this connection to her and growing up between... London and uh, and the Highlands, the Scottish Highlands. Um, I followed her story with uh, with enthusiasm. So, talk to me about the story and about that. You know, the the dramatic uh, incident where Bonnie Prince Charlie needs needs the help because it it is quite an adventure story. The way they disguise Bonnie Prince Charlie as an Irish maid so that he can be smuggled uh, to the Isle of Skye. That's right. So, so he they dress Bonnie Prince Charlie up as Betty Burke, this Irish maid, on the pretext that that he's a, or she is a, a good spinster or, or spins lint and wool well. And Flora's supposedly bringing this this Irish spinner of yarn over to her mother on the Isle of Skye. In reality. The redcoats, the Hanoverian officers and their men, are uh, two miles or less away from uh, Bonnie Prince Charlie, and and he's he's in serious danger of being found, being taken to London, possibly being uh, executed. So it is probably the 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 moment where 
after the Battle of Culloden, he's in the most danger of being detected. And it's Flora who saves him and courageously takes him as her, her maid. And we get, of course, the famous song commemorating uh, their voyage from uh, the Western Isles over to Sky, Speed Bonnie Boat Like a Bird on the Wing. And that it commemorates the, the, the voyage of Flora and Betty Burke to Sky, and uh, ultimately uh, he gets to, um, to France and the, to the continent in safety. And Flora, in the process, as you say, becomes this heroine. She's immortalised in ballads. But it, there are difficult times for her ahead because her involvement becomes known by the English and she's arrested and imprisoned. Yes, she's taken um, south to London. And it was a very dangerous period when these rebels off who'd who'd been out, as they say, for the for the prince, who'd fought for the Stuart cause at Culloden, when they were rounded up, when they'd fled into the hills but were pursued by by the the Redcoats. And they also, uh, the Redcoats also went round after the, it became known the prince had, had got away uh, from the Western Isles and Sky and got away, well, they couldn't find him. He was in hiding on, on the Scottish west coast but they went around rounding up all those who had helped him and among them of course was flora and she's taken down to london and examined by the privy council which was you know the highest court if you like in the land and ultimately in a general amnesty in 1747 she and all those who haven't been either transported or hanged or executed, they're allowed home and she returns to Skye. But it's a dangerous period for, for her. She could have been transported. I don't think they would have uh, hung or executed her. She was too much of a popular heroine. But she could well have been transported, um, as were many Scots who had uh, helped the prince or had been out in, in the 45. And of course there's an exciting later part as well as she ends up uh, in North Carolina and her husband, a uh, man who she marries, uh, becomes involved in the, the American Revolutionary War. But that's that's another part of the story. But I'd like to ask you, Flora, about the, the art, the craft of historical biography because it's fascinating the way you have to tease through mythology here, uh, the romantic version, and then the trying to, to use the archives to piece together the real version. Yes, I, I was fortunate in, in that I had access to the Duke of Cumberland's papers in the Royal Archives and also uh, at Windsor and also the Stuart, that's papers, uh, in the Royal Archives. Those are the papers of Bonnie Prince Charlie and his father and brothers. So I, I could actually piece together day by day uh, the hunt for, for the prince and afterwards the Hanoverian soldiers, officers, piecing together the evidence which made it clear that Flora had been with her stepfather, uh, had been prime movers in, in getting the prince away. And so it was fascinating having access to those papers and literally following 
day by day as the Hanoverian officers sort of hone in on on Flora and ultimately arrest her and take her down by ship to London. And later, again, talking of Flora's part in the Revolutionary War, when she, she and her family emigrated economic migrants to, to North Carolina in the 1770s. And a wonderful documentary website there called Documenting the American South uh, gave me access to all the papers regarding the events, including a last Highland charge, uh, which didn't take place in the Highlands, but uh, took place uh, in North Carolina. That documentary archive was, again, tremendously helpful. But the mythology, uh, the romantic versions, the oral recollections of those in Flora's circle later, oral recollections of the 45, are also important for forming a picture of what appeared important about Flora's story and Flora's character at different times. And and that, so I always take careful account of the romantic and the, if you like, uh, mythological accounts of someone's story. Well, you tell the story so brilliantly in the book, Flora. The book is called Pretty Young Rebel, The Life of Flora MacDonald. It's published in hardback by Bloomsbury Publishing. The author is the wonderful Flora Fraser. And Flora, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thank you so much, Patrick. More rugged and elevated than any other zone on Earth, Himalaya embraces all of Tibet plus six of the world's eight major mountain ranges and nearly all its highest peaks. Over the years, Himalaya has drawn an illustrious succession of admirers from explorers, surveyors to botanists and zoologists, ethnologists and geologists, missionaries and mountaineers. However, a new book shows that without an otherworldly ethos and respect for its confounding, utterly fascinating features, Himalaya may soon cease to exist. The book is called Himalaya, Exploring the Roof of the World. It's published in hardback by Bloomsbury Publishing. and I'm delighted to welcome the author John Kay to the show tonight. John, can we talk about the name first, Himalaya? Uh, I've always thought of it as the Himalayas and known it as that. What's the difference between the Himalayas and Himalaya? <laughs> Well, there's a mountain range called the Great Himalaya, or Great Himalaya, which is which is a part of the Himalayas. The Himalayas is a, a really a westernization. The, the word uh, Himalaya or Himalaya is uh, Sanskrit. Hima means snow, and Alia means uh, land or abode or place of snow. So Himalaya means place of snow, and it's a singular. So in India, it's usually known... The region is usually known as Himalaya, and that's the sense in which I'm using it here. It embraces a lot of mountain ranges, including what we call the Himalayas or the Great Himalaya, the, 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 the range to which uh, Everest obviously belongs, but a lot of other big mountain ranges. Uh, the Hindu Kush, for instance, the Pamirs, uh, the Karakorams, uh, the Kunlun. So it's, it's, uh, Himalaya is a term for the whole of that elevated region in the heart of Asia, which on a map very often appears to be kind of bruised. It's a kind of purple or white color even. It's all the land above 3,000 meters uh, above sea level. Uh, And 
it's uh, in the heart of Asia, and uh, it's Himalaya uh, is the term for the whole of that region. It was sometimes called High Asia at uh, one time, but nowadays it's called Himalaya and India. Uh, uh, everyone uses the term Himalaya rather than Himalayas. And you have a very arresting opening sentence about how history has not been kind to Himalaya. And you show how it's been appropriated by too many, how there's always been this undercurrent of conflict. And uh, it's, it's a contested area. Yes, very much so. I mean, that's one of the reasons why we have difficulty with the term, term Himalaya, because we think of it uh, as being, uh, the whole region as being very cut up, as politically in terms of religions, in terms of uh, ethnicities and so on. Um, and uh, this is indeed the case, but uh, it, that it, and, and, and there are probably a half a dozen at least um, Himalayan states, Himalaya states. But in terms of its um, uh, environment, in terms of uh, the natural environment, it, it, it forms a single uh, zone. In fact, it's the world's highest uh, eco-zone. Um, and it's to see it in terms of a, a single integrated unit is what I've tried to do uh, in this book and to um, work out what it is that has appealed and, and uh, repelled, indeed, um, so many uh, uh, explorers and um, scientists. And you begin with a very interesting expedition at the turn of the, the 20th century led by France's young husband, Yes, the Young Husband Expedition is uh, kind of central to the book and to the story of Himalaya. Um, this was an expedition from British India to uh, break into, to break the isolation of Tibet and to try and establish uh, political relations with uh, the authorities in Lhasa, in the Tibetan capital. It was in 1904. And it was originally planned as a sort of diplomatic enterprise, but it became very much a military expedition. Um, And a young husband and his uh, considerable uh, little army actually had to fight their way uh, across, uh, through the Great Himalaya and across the Tibetan plateau to Lhasa. So uh, expedition is um, uh, a really a sort of classic example of late 19th, early 20th century colonial conquest. Um, but it had a strange effect on nearly all the people who were involved in it. Um, uh, young husband himself never actually returned to the region. Um, but many of the officers who served under him did return and all contributed considerably to the um, exploration and understanding of Tibet subsequently, and most of them were deeply changed by the whole experience. So it's a kind of a reciprocal thing between British military interests and Tibetan isolationism, which really sort of turns the whole thing uh, on its head, and um, several of the principal figures uh, wrote very sympathetically about Tibet and made Tibet the subject for study for the rest of their lives. So uh, I use it Young Husband Expedition partly because uh, it seems to me a kind of analogy for the whole uh, Western Tibetan relationship or Himalayan relationship, but also because it's, it's a kind of handy device for the, in terms of the book in that these characters from the expedition keep resurfacing in the subsequent history of Western relations with Himalaya. 
And I mentioned in my introduction that it's drawn an illustrious succession of admirers, but it's also drawn uh, some maybe not quite so illustrious admirers, including the Nazis in the 1930s, who were fascinated by these mountains of destiny. <laughs> yes. Um, one of the greatest of all Tibetologists was a man called Giuseppe Tucci, an Italian, who spent devoted his entire life to exploring the Tibetan religion and Buddhism. He was, in fact, a Buddhist himself. But also, he was a very, very difficult man. And his expeditions were funded by um, Mussolini in the 1930s. And that was really uh, the first time that um, fascists began to start taking an interest in uh, Central Asia, Inner Asia, Himalaya. And uh, this quest, this interest in this part of the world was, of course, taken up by uh, the Germans uh, in the 1930s, and um, many of them saw uh, Tibet as the uh, kind of source of the Aryan race, and um, several expeditions from from Germany uh, were sent into Tibet, even sometimes flying the swastika flag. They, they found some sort of um, attachment, some uh, shared history, they thought, with the Tibetan peoples and with uh, early Buddhism. Um, and, uh, I mean, the, the, the sort of classic example, really, was, I suppose, Heinrich Harrer, the man who wrote the, the Seven Years in Tibet, who escaped into Tibet during the Second World War from an internment camp in, camp in India, and uh, was really uh, a, a central figure in Tibet in the, at the end of the war, and was subsequently found to have been a member of the SS, which which wasn't realised at the time at all. But his book, of course, was probably the most successful book ever written about Himalaya, Seven Years in Tibet, and it's been made into film several times. So what is the problem then facing it? Because you show how the tectonic plates are continuing to shift, that uh, climate change and global warming seems to be causing massive problems. Uh, how great is the challenge and is it possible that Himalaya might soon cease to exist? Yes. Uh, well, I mean, it obviously is being affected by climate change. We all hear about the ice cap retreating in um, Antarctica and uh, Greenland. But a similar uh, phenomenon is, is observable in Himalaya, where a lot of the glaciers uh, have shrunk in recent years, and this is absolutely well. It's it's catastrophic for Himalaya itself, but it's more catastrophic for all those regions of South Asia, India, Pakistan, and Southeast Asia, um, Vietnam, and so on, that rely heavily on rivers which have their sources on the Tibetan Plateau or in uh, in the mountains. And the tragedy of it all is, I mean, something like world's population who depend on Himalayas. Water tire, as it's called, but it, it's it's enormous. And uh, if uh, if these glaciers retreat uh, and the subsequent drainage of water is is seriously affected, then it will have disastrous consequences in throughout South and Southeast Asia. There are exceptions, though. I mean, I particularly was intrigued by something called the Karakoram anomaly. Now, the Karakorams are probably the largest concentration of uh, massive peaks and glaciers uh, in, the, in the world, or certainly outside polar regions. But here in the Karakorams, there are uh, quite a few examples of uh, glaciers that are still advancing. So it's not quite as clear-cut in uh, what's happening in terms of climate change in 
Himalaya as perhaps it is in Greenland or in Antarctica, but it is nevertheless an enormous worry. Also, the, the peoples of Himalaya have been amazing in terms of cultivating their own glaciers. In, in the Karakoram, uh, glaciers are always either male or female, and there's a wonderful kind of uh, lore about how you stop a glacier from advancing. And there's um, uh, artificial glaciers are now quite, quite the rage, not just in Karakorams, but also in parts of Ladakh and Baltistan in, in, in western Tibet. So um, uh, I, I wouldn't say that um, the situation in, in Himalaya is as critical as it is in some uh, areas, like Antarctica. But it is serious. But also, but uh, the, the, happily, the peoples in Himalaya are, are responding rather brilliantly to uh, this challenge. Well, the book is called Himalaya, Exploring the Roof of the World. It's published in hardback by Bloomsbury Publishing. The author, John Kay. And John, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Very nice to talk to you. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History with Patrick Dagan on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. Published in the centenary year of the foundation of the Irish state, a new book reviews 100 years of government policy on the Irish language and assesses its relative success or failure. The book is called 100 Years of Irish Language Policy, 1922 to 2022. It's published in paperback by Peter Lang. The author is John Walsh. And John, you're very welcome to the show tonight. Thanks very much, Patrick. Can we maybe go back 100 years then? What was the state of play when it came to the Irish language in 1922? How many people spoke it and how strong was it? Well, the Irish language was in a very weakened state by the time of the foundation of the uh, state in 1922, Patrick. I mean, the the census returns from around that time showed that less than 20% of the population professed an ability in it. And most of these people were in the western, along the western seaboard in the areas that had come to be known as Gaeltacht around that same time, really from the time of the revival period in the final quarter of the 19th century. Most of these people were illiterate in Irish. Most of them were living in areas that were more or less uh, the same as the congested district board. And uh, many of those who had been involved in the revival of Irish were not closely associated with these areas. They were largely members of the middle class based in the cities. So you had this dichotomy developing where the, the people who were most engaged in the promotion of Irish were, were, were mostly uh, learners of the language and the speakers of the language, the remaining speakers of the language were mostly uh, from very impoverished districts. So it was really a gargantuan task that the new state was facing in terms of making this that this core population, which was deemed to be ideologically very important for the revival of the language, essentially building a national and official language on this very dispersed and very deprived uh, core population. Looking at the first few decades after independence, you get a sense that there were all these great ideals and aims and aspirations, but not really the, the well thought out policies to match them and to make the aspirations a reality. 
Yes, there was a lot of, of, of very high-minded aspirational thinking uh, going on at this time, absolutely, and we have to look at the context in which the revival of the Irish language uh, emerged very much on the back of an ideology of romanticism and very much in line with other movements in different parts of uh, Europe. Uh, you know, similar movements were beginning to gain traction in places like Galicia and in Scotland at the same time, both of which have their own specific uh, regional language still being promoted today. And also we need to take into account the fact that the, the science of language policy, as we know it today, the area in which I'm working, didn't exist then. We had linguistics, which was very theoretical and very historical and very structural in its in its approach. There was no sense of any awareness really about minoritization of languages or the promotion of minority languages. These are all... Uh, academic currents and academic fields that emerged in the middle of the 20th century from the new field of sociolinguistics, which was essentially the combination of sociology of language and linguistics, which led in turn to the, uh, to the theories of language policy that we can draw on today. So the state was many decades in ahead of the emergence of academic understandings of this area and even public understandings of the area. There was a lot of wishful thinking involved. In the Irish case, there was a lot of romanticism involved. Uh, there were, the, the, you know, there was a belief that somehow in the same way that, that English had been widely promoted through the establishment of the national school system in the early 19th century, that somehow by reintroducing Irish into the education system in the early 20th century, that the, uh, the language could be somewhat brought back. So there was no real understanding at the time of the complexity of the task of the of really the mammoth nature of the task given the very deprived position of the Irish language uh, when the state was founded and a lot of aspirational thinking but that said patrick there were still some important um policy objectives and uh you know they were significant uh, for their time um i mean if we look at the main areas in which irish was promoted um obviously education is a was a major plank and the decision to introduce Irish as a core subject in the education system in 1922 really remains at the at the centre of language promotion efforts today and if it, if it wasn't for that Irish would be in a far weaker position than it is there were also significant developments for instance in terms of legal status Irish being given the status of official language and national language in the constitution of 1922 and then augmented status in 1937 in the new uh, de Valera constitution and then also the the Gaeltacht itself and one of the major initiatives of the 1920s was a commission to look at the extent of the Gaeltacht and make recommendations for it to be consolidated. There were also developments in the early years in broadcasting 2RN was launched in Irish by Douglas Hyde. Uh, Irish became uh, a staple of the, the one radio station, especially with the development of Radio Éireann in the 1930s and so on. Um, but the, the, there was also the development of Irish as a requirement for public administration. So all general grades in the civil service required uh, people working in them to pass an Irish exam. So these were important policy measures, but they were very much taking place against a background of ignorance about the the complexity of language promotion, and that is not necessarily to 
to be overly critical of the policymakers at the time. The information simply wasn't there. Um, and we see changes then in language policy in the 1950s when further, you know, the international influences on Ireland become more apparent at a later period in the, in the language policy. Perhaps we can come back to those later. And when you mention areas like education and you have a whole chapter on that, there's always been a sense that policy and education was too heavy handed and that by forcing the language down the throats of generations of children, it alienated them from it. Is that is that too harsh? Absolutely. I wouldn't agree with that assessment at all, um, Patrick. And if we look at the, if we compare the contexts of minority language promotion across Western Europe, the best cases to compare with Irish are Wales and the Basque country because neither of those languages are too big. Uh, They're medium-sized languages, uh, somewhat like Irish, and um, the main difference, of course, in both of those cases is that we're not dealing with independent states, we're dealing with sub-state entities. But the the experience in both of these, uh, both of those entities, both the Wales and the Basque country, shows that in order to bring about um, widespread knowledge of a minoritized language, it has to be strongly promoted in the education system and in Ireland the the policy that was chosen was relatively mild compared to the efforts of those sub-state entities in later decades. So for instance Irish was introduced as a core subject in all schools and later in the 20s and 30s became a core subject for exams but there was never widespread development in those early years um, that was sustained of immersion education. You had the A schools that taught through Irish and they were sustained and grew relatively spectacularly in the in the first t- 10, 15, 20 years but the that, 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 that system collapsed after that and that really meant that students were getting far less exposure to Irish than would be required for them to to attain a high competence in it because the international research shows that the amount of time spent teaching Irish as a subject is not sufficient to bring about high levels of competence in the language and that's why the Gaelskolina, the immersion schools that we have today that really developed since the 1970s are very successful in developing high levels of competence in the language. So arguably the education policy was quite mild and uh, when various groups, for instance, the INTO was quite worried about the policy of promoting Irish at school and complaints began to emerge from the 1930s and 1940s onwards, really what nascent system of immersion education that existed fell apart and there was a very serious decline in the percentage of schools that were teaching through Irish from the 1940s really onwards that collapsed down to very little indeed by the late 1960s and then in the 1970s the Gaelskolina movement began um, as a response to other retreats in language policy and they've been very successful in developing high levels of competence in Irish and the international research shows that that is the the most successful way of developing high levels of competence in a language. It doesn't necessarily translate into high levels of use, but you can't have high levels of use without having high levels of competence. And certainly the example of the Basque country is quite interesting in that there's been a spectacular increase in the percentage of students in immersion education. It's about 75% now in the Basque country. So really those are the models that we need to be looking at. And I would argue that the the, the failure of the Irish state to develop um, immersion education in Irish beyond its current level of about 8% is, is a very serious restraint in the development of the language. 
language generally. It's interesting that you also decide to look at Northern Ireland as well as what's happening in the South. And when you look at Irish language use there, I mean, you look at even some of the controversies in most more recent times about the Irish Language Act, it's, it's a different story. Yes, it's a very different story, and I don't focus specifically on the North in this book. It's essentially a book mostly about the Irish state, but you can't consider this topic without taking an All-Ireland dimension, and I was lucky to be able to benefit from the archives of Conor Nguega, which are here in uh, NUI Galway, and they, they give a very interesting look at the activist perspective over the course of a century, longer than a century, uh, and many of the campaigns were all Ireland in nature, but looking specifically at the North, um, I mean, we, there were decades uh, of hostility and complete marginalisation of Irish under Unionist government, and it was really only from the late 1980s onwards that that began to change uh, in a policy perspective, very much in line with uh, the the peace process, the very nascent peace, peace process. And um, there had been strong community activism in favour of Irish from the late 1960s in places like West Belfast, most specifically in West Belfast, where people came together to create an intentional community of Irish-speaking families in the so-called Shaw's Road, Gaeltacht, which still exists today and is now into the third generation of Irish speakers there. And their aim was to try and create a micro-urban Gaeltacht, and it really is the only example of that in the country, in the entire island where uh, families are living together deliberately as Irish speakers in an attempt to create an Irish speaking environment for for their children and those families campaigned for an Irish language school which was illegal for the first decade, more than the first decade of its existence. The teachers had to be paid by collecting their salaries on the street in an area that was extremely deprived um, economically and um, especially with the context of the Troubles as well. And then those movements um, continued throughout the 1980s. A pirate radio station in West Belfast um, really broke the mould, took advantage of the uh, loopholes in legislation in the south in order to have um, illegal transmitters delivered across the border. That was a not an interesting, not, not an easy feat uh, during the 1980s, given the political context, to be smuggling pieces of equipment across the border uh, for illegal purposes anyway, on both sides of the border. So that was a very important initiative, was Radio Falcha, the and, and that went on to be licensed um, by Ofcom, the UK uh, communications regulator. And, you know, the Irish language has, has has developed uh, very significantly in the north and then of course there's the status of the language under the Good Friday Agreement uh, where both governments um, undertake to promote the language and the British government in particular commits to resolute action in favour of the Irish language to developing developing it in education and in broadcasting and then subsequently the cross-border language promotion agency Forest Nguelga which um, today operates on an all-Ireland all basis. So looking at from a policy perspective, looking at Irish in the north reminds us of the transformed nature of governance of the language over the last century and really in the last 25 years um, the language is one of six themes that are promoted uh, under the, the, the Good Friday Agreement structures and that's very significant indeed. However, there are still very serious problems as we know with Irish language legislation in the north and there's been a vigorous campaign that has quite spectacularly succeeded in persuading the British government to enact the legislation through Westminster but of course there's always the broader context of Anglo-Irish relations which are particularly tricky at the moment as we know and then internal opposition in Northern Ireland itself from many uh, many unionists uh, to any 
robust promotion of the Irish language. But again, I'd say that language legislation is the norm for many minority language um, contexts in Western Europe. And again, if we look at the other uh, uh, Celtic languages in the UK, so Scottish Gaelic and Welsh are all promoted by domestic legislation. So, And Irish, obviously, in the Republic of Ireland is supported by domestic legislation as well. So Northern Ireland was the outlier in this regard. Uh, So enacting that legislation will bring Irish in the north in line with the protection, the legal protection for minority languages elsewhere in Ireland and in the UK. And finally, what would you see as the future of the Irish language in the 21st century? And especially then when we look at the, the new Irish, the, the, the numbers of immigrants, because you do have a criticism at the end about how there hasn't been an attempt to maybe introduce immigrants to the Irish language and what do you see as the future then in terms of looking forward ahead the next 100 years? Well, I think the question of immigrants is quite serious, given the, the most recent census showed that about 17% of the population were not born in Ireland. And again, if we look across Europe in the Catalan context, for instance, in the Basque context, again, we see quite targeted campaigns introducing the language to immigrants. And um, I mean, Irish is relevant for immigrants coming to Ireland in that their, 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 their children will be studying it at school. And any serious language promotion campaign cannot afford to ignore that part of the population. So absolutely more needs to be done in that regard. In terms of language policy generally, really looking back over the last century, it's been a mixed bag. There have been important policy successes, but in recent years these have largely been as a result of public pressure. So pressure by voluntary organisations, Conor Naguilga and others. The, the campaign for Tiji Cahar is a very good example for this. The campaign for Irish language legislation in the Republic. The campaign for Irish language status in the European Union. These are all, these were all community-led campaigns that basically forced or cajoled reluctant governments to to grant the policy concession that was being required. So I think this shows us that, you know, the Irish language voluntary sector needs to remain ahead of the game in terms of campaigning in in a sophisticated manner. Um, You know, we're we're, we're never going to have a situation again where Irish is the predominant language of Ireland, despite the desires of some uh, activists. I, I don't believe that that situation will be achieved. But I do think that we can legitimately Um, look to an aim of better supporting Irish speakers of all types in the Gaeltacht and elsewhere, uh, ensuring that the Gaeltacht is adequately supported as the historical heartland of the language, which is important, but also ensuring that as many people as possible can be introduced to the language. The question of funding then and governance is very important as well. So, of course, that's tricky as well in that um, some organisations may not wish to bite the hand that feeds them. So, again, diversification of funding uh, avenues is important and many language promotion bodies need to consider how how funding could be diversified beyond the state into other sectors in order to give them greater independence in their promotional efforts. So I'd be fairly positive, Patrick, in terms of public um, opinion being generally favourable. The speaker community is too small, really, after 100 years. It should, we should have more regular speakers of Irish. So that is the biggest challenge now. And um, that would be the priority, I think. That should be the priority of promotional efforts in the coming decades. Okay, well, lots of food for thought there and some optimism as well. The book is called 100 Years of Irish Language Policy, 1922 to 2022. It's published in paperback by Peter Lang, the author, John Walsh. And John, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Patrick. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History with Patrick Gagan on News Talk. On News Talk.
Well, welcome back to Talking History. Why did Julius Caesar come to Britain and why did it take so long for Rome to conquer it? Well, a new book provides a different narrative of the Roman conquest of Britain from the two campaigns of Caesar right up to the construction of Hadrian's Wall. The book is called Conquering the Ocean, the Roman Invasion of Britain. It's published in hardback by Oxford University Press. The author is Richard Hingley. And Richard, you're very welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Can we begin with this idea of it being a long conquest? Because I think we have this idea in our heads that it was a fairly quick thing. But as you show, there were two campaigns by Caesar. About 100 years later, you have Emperor Claudius being involved. And 100 years later or so, you still have more. That this is something that takes a few hundred years. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Caesar came to Britain um, because he was campaigning in Gaul. And uh, he was fascinated by the idea of visiting Britain, and uh, he probably did have some intentions to conquer territory and certainly to get some, some wealth out of people in Britain. But he had no real intention of staying in Britain. He was so engaged in conquering and subduing Gaul, uh, the territories that are now largely in modern France, that he can't really have had the intention of conquering Britain. But Caesar set a precedent because... He describes Britain as a distant, um, very poorly known place that the Romans really weren't too aware of. And then the Romans do not return um, and do not develop the ambition of conquering Britain until the Emperor Claudius leads a military victory. Uh, Claudius uh, came to power uh, in Rome in AD 41, and he needs a victory because He's not a strong military man, and he needed support from the Senate. And Britain seems, relatively at least, uh, an easy place potentially to conquer. And it's also a fabulous place. Uh, It's fabulous partly because Caesar had been to Britain already. But then we tend to think that Claudius uh, conquered Britain often when we think about the Romans and Britain. But Claudius only starts the conquest. And really, it takes 40 years or so before the Romans are campaigning into northern Britain. Indeed, they never conquer the whole of Britain. So the conquest period itself is quite long and drawn out. I'm fascinated by that idea of Britain being this fabulous place in the imagination of the Romans. And why was that? Was it the fact that it was an island or the fact that they had you know, some romantic idea about it because it definitely seems to to occupy a significant place in their imagination. Yes, indeed. Um, Caesar tells us that uh, people in Rome, his friends and colleagues, knew really, really very, very little about Britain. And that in itself makes it seem quite fabulous because the Romans see the land and the sea partly as divine spirits. So if you do not have experience if you haven't campaigned across land and you haven't actually gained knowledge of the coast, the mountains and the agricultural lands, uh, that land is obviously going to seem strange to you. In the case of Britain, the fundamental thing which really drives the Romans to be interested in this distant island is the fact that it is an island. The Romans have a worldview which they inherit from the Greeks that their world as a massive island, a world island, 
which is surrounded by an endless ocean. Uh, the endless ocean um, is actually ruled over by a god called Oceanus. Now, Oceanus in Greek thought was one of the original titans, so he was a giant, and he was a, a, a very ancestral, very revered god who the Romans um, adopted into their pantheon. Uh, but Britain was this fabulous place, partly because it was the largest island that the Romans knew of, um, but they knew so little about it that it has this fabulous status in Roman thought. And that idea of Britain as a rather fabulous, distant place actually doesn't entirely disappear as the Roman military campaign across Britain and conquered territory. It still goes down, actually, throughout the period I've covered in my book and into the late Roman period, um, the idea that Britain is a fabulous, distant place and, to an extent at least, the home of this really revered ancestral god, Oceanus. And what happened then when they arrived in Britain and discovered that perhaps it wasn't quite uh, as fabulous as they had imagined and that the reality was something different? That's a difficult question. Um, a lot of uh, senior Romans do come to Britain. Um, under Caesar, Caesar takes a lot of young, ambitious uh, Roman um, gentlemen to Britain, really, with him to campaign. Uh, they go back to Rome, and I suppose they want to tell fabulous stories about what happens to them. Uh, Caesar also describes the people in Britain and the landscapes. And what he writes doesn't make, seem, make Britain seem that fabulous. But, for instance, he takes back oysters. Um, Caesar was very keen on obtaining British oysters. Uh, obviously, the oysters um, come from the realm of Oceanus. And he takes them back to Rome and turns them into um, an offering for the goddess Venus. And really, I think you have to bear in mind that the, the elite of Rome, when they've actually been to Britain and go back to Rome, want to tell fabulous stories. So these ideas of Britain as a sort of fabulous place really are, are, are very prominent in Rome. And I think the day-to-day -day experience of Roman commanders and soldiers in Britain probably doesn't really uh, erode that idea of a fabulous island. In, in reality, Caesar, when he describes the Britons and how the Britons live, does not really give the impression of a fabulous people. These people are seen as primarily as barbarians, but fairly valiant barbarians who fight quite determinedly against Britain. But the Romans have their mind all the time, these ideas of spirits and gods. And because Britain has a special status, really it's a sort of contradiction between a barbaric island and a fabulous island ruled over by Oceanus. Let's talk then about Hadrian's Wall, because you have a very interesting idea about why that was constructed. So um, why was that built? Well, it's, there's a debate about why Hadrian wanted a wall. One of the fundamental issues I think we need to realise and this is coming on um, almost 80 years after Claudius first leads soldiers into Britain, is that there is a major uprising, we believe, in northern Britain around the time Hadrian comes to power. So around about uh, 11728 AD, uh, we have um, information that indicates that people in northern Britain are uh, campaigning to drive 
uh, Rome back to, uh, to cause trouble on the frontier. At this stage, the frontier of Roman Britain uh, is where Hadrian's Wall is to be built. And uh, one famous story which has come down through time is about the idea of the defeat of the Ninth Legion. Now, archaeologists over the last 20 years have tended to dismiss the idea that the Ninth Legion was defeated in Britain. We have no definitive information, but it's becoming a more popular idea now that there was this major uprising and the Romans suffered quite a severe defeat. So if you think about the security of the frontier, by this time we have a province in southern Britain which has towns and a lot of intensive agricultural production. It's quite a wealthy, settled land, and it's been part of the Roman Empire for um, eight decades. We have this major uprising in the north. Uh, so the Romans want uh, additional security against the troubles that might be caused by people to their north. But I'm more interested in what the war means in terms of its symbolism, because Hadrian can control the frontier with his armies and with his forts and with his roads. So why did Hadrian decide to build this massive uh, linear frontier wall? And when we think of the wall, we need to remember that the wall itself is not just a wall. It has regular forts with military units stationed along it. And indeed, it's a, a, it's a dual barrier. It's got a massive earthwork called the Vallum to the south. It's a really major undertaking to build this structure, and it takes years and years and years. And to me, it is really a symbol of might and power of Hadrian. So Hadrian stamping his authority as emperor onto this fabulous island, because Britain is still very much seen as a fabulous place, a distant, unknown, fabulous place by the Roman elite. Now, also, in addition, I think Hadrian's making a claim to conquering the ocean, because Romans write from Caesar through Claudius down to Hadrian, play on this idea that they've conquered ocean, they've subdued Oceanus, this divine spirit, and Hadrian's Wall, uh, if you want, fortifies the riverine boundary, which is created by the rivers to the east and west, to actually effectively complete the conquest of Britain. Now, we know that Hadrian didn't complete the conquest of Britain because all that land to the north, what is now Scotland, and also, indeed, Ireland, remain outside the Roman Empire. But he's making a claim to have fundamentally subdued and conquered ocean through the construction of this massive, very heavily fortified wall. So frontier works, you know, if we look at modern frontier boundaries, walls, Trump's wall or whatever, always have multiple functions. And Hadrian's wall is a defensive structure, but it's also highly symbolic and ritualized. Well, it's a fascinating story. The book is called Conquering the Ocean, The Roman Invasion of Britain. It's published in hardback by Oxford University Press. The author, Richard Hingley. And Richard, thanks so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thank you. And that does bring us to the end of another edition of Talking History. My thanks to my series producer, Marais O'Sullivan, to Simon Keane, who helped produce tonight, and to Peter Malloy on sound. We've been Talking History. Thanks for listening.